Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, your host for the Future of Higher Education, and I'm back with Esther Barazzoni, talking to her about her very successful tenure as the president of Chatham University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, from 1992 through 2016. Esther, when we left off uh, last time, we were just before the next really major transformational stage in Chatham in 2007-2008. So there are three, three different changes there, all in a short span, that I wanted to ask you about. First, can you tell us about the decision to become a university from Chatham College, which it had been since the 1950s? Hello again. Uh, the main reason to focus on becoming a university was that we already were one. Pennsylvania happens to be a state with somewhat... Uh, shall I say, flexible guidelines for being a university. But Chatham, unlike another, a lot of institutions that offered to or promised to create doctoral programs in the future, uh, Chatham already had them. We had a predominance of graduate students already. We had, uh, I don't remember now how many graduate programs. We probably had 15 or 20 by that point. And so it represented our reality and while other institutions like Bremar never became a university, despite also having very distinguished graduate programs through the doctoral level, uh, it seems not to have affected their ability to recruit, but we knew it would affect ours. International students often don't understand uh, what an American college is. And we uh, have always been committed to international students and topics. So I would say those were the two primary reasons. Mm-hmm. And was were there any difficulties with the process? Did you run into any opposition? As you say, you already met the criteria because you'd been doing graduate education successfully for 15 years. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, not, not really. The board was enthusiastic. Uh, like, like most real big changes, not all of them, but some of them gestated a long time, like co-education, like becoming a university, and uh, not starting graduate programs. We did that very quickly, as well as uh, NCAA athletics. But uh, no, there was very little opposition. Mostly people were proud, including uh, women in the traditional women's college were very pleased. Great. So, so a, a next big move, which, which may seem surprising to those who just know Pittsburgh today, where Bakery Square is probably the highest end real estate, thriving, whatnot, was your decision to buy an over 300,000 square foot old uh, manufacturing building, the Eichley building, in what was Bakery Square or East Liberty at a time when that was not the safest or best neighborhood in Pittsburgh. So tell, tell us about that bold decision to make a major investment, a major really first significant real estate expansion for Chatham in its history. Right. Uh, Yes, particularly since the last administration had 
ended with selling off real estate, right. which we had slowly been buying back. We acquired, because, right. Yeah. That's right. And the good news is that we had the enrollment to demand that we have space. Yeah. We, we started the health science programs uh, with with really a very tolerant faculty as, as we put uh, – yeah programs like physical therapy into basements of the chapel and things like that, making do while we grew. Um, but we absolutely had to have more space. And so uh, we had, we could lease space. We thought about leasing space, uh, but you know, my West Virginia grandmother would have totally disapproved of that. So <laughs> it, it seemed really very important to not throw our assets at uh, rental for someone else because it was our hope and belief that this was our long-term trajectory to need space close to the campus uh, and also um, that could accommodate the health sciences. And we could see, we had a very good master planner work with us, we could see which programs could uh, successfully uh, go less than a mile away uh, so it, it, but we still wanted our programs to be pretty close, so they could draw uh, off of the advantages of the other programs that would be walking distance uh, from there. And as it turns out, you're absolutely right. We hit, we made one of the uh, unwittingly smartest uh, real estate investments one could have made. Uh, but it wasn't. It didn't come cheap. It was eighteen million dollars, which was a lot of money. I believe it was 18, not 16, uh, a lot of money at that point but, for but us. The, the be- but the beauty was it, it also came with rent-paying tenants, right? So you were able to cover a lot of the mortgage using the space you needed, but having all of the rest of the building filled, right? Absolutely. We treasured those tenants and valued them, and, and they were actually very, very good uh uh, tenants for us because they were into such high-tech research and we always found them to be very stimulating and uh, flexible partners. So, uh, yes, it was hard for people to understand that this, this building purchase was self-supporting, but indeed it was. So, And, and how did you persuade Google to move next door the following year? <laughs> Oh, just silver tongue, silver tongue. That coffee shop meant a lot, too. <laughs> no, it was really quite, it became more and more cool to be in that building, which is which is just great. And I, I so, do recall, and part of the question was, how did we persuade the board, particularly uh, yeah. given, and I know uh, we'll, we'll get there, but given that there were yeah. other things on our plate at the time, and as ever, the wonderful Sigur sure. Falk was uh, imminently quotable and said, well, if it doesn't work out, we'll just sell it. <laughs> so, so with the idea that there was always an exit for urban real estate. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this coincided, unfortunately, right, with major recession coming at that time, um, just after making an $18 million investment. Uh, one of the things I found really startling when, when I joined Chatham was that, that you and the board managed in the midst of all this to say, we're not going to draw money from the endowment for four years to allow it to rebuild. How, how did you go about that? 
given given everything else that was going on. 44 months, we didn't touch the endowment. It, it wasn't that we decided... Uh, wasn't that we decided we were going to have a four-year moratorium. It was that we decided we were going to have a moratorium for as long as was necessary in order to, uh, to grow back uh, the endowment. Uh, Chatham had, had always been unusual in its approach to self-financing. Earlier in our conversations, we talked about how when we were totally not debt-worthy, uh, nor grant worthy. We had to right. manage our own assets uh, in order to invest in ourselves. And so unlike a lot of places that use their endowments for a lot of what they would call qualitative enhancements, we used ours really for growth and for investment. And so we never over overgrew. We never uh, really indulged in luxuries. I remember in the after the 08 crisis, the papers were full of all of the things that institutions were having to cut back. And they were really lamenting that Harvard could no longer provide a supplemental hot breakfast for its athletes, right? Shocking, shocking. Shocking, absolutely. And we just laughed because we had always lived within our own means. And so what happened when we went through the first uh, deeply painful cuts, cutting 20% of our faculty and staff when I got there, um, and preserving contract and creating contracts that gave us institutional flexibility while honoring and protecting the people who were in them. We weren't cavalier about our workforce, but we did also try to protect the institution. So we always uh, were fiscally very, very prudent. And so we would ask people to cut back department heads, deans, only when it was necessary. Mm-hmm. And everyone was extremely collaborative and cooperative, and we managed. Yeah, yeah. it's re- really impressive. So now I want to turn to arguably the most transformative, at least in terms of acreage and square footage, but also arguably in terms of mission and where the planet is heading. So this was the 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 gift of the 380. 388-acre Eden Hall campus, and then the Falk School that's housed there. Can you tell us about sort of the genesis of that, how it came about, and 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 then the the thought process in terms of what to do with this amazing, uh, you know, new real estate? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> that, of course, is is an extraordinary uh, experience for an opportunity for any institution to have. Uh, Chatham had worked very hard for a long time, deserving its environmental credentials. They started before I got there. Uh, Chatham Chatham had always been proud of Rachel Carson being its alma mater and had created the Rachel Carson Institute. I think it was about a year old uh, when I got there. And so uh, I took very seriously that we had done that and pushed it uh, because I knew the institution was committed to it. And we frequently would ask ourselves, uh, what can we do to deserve uh, 
the accolades that we yeah. give ourselves because we graduated Rachel Carson. Yeah. And so we had done a great number of programs, uh, institutional programs, and I forget now the sequence of all of them. So these are just exemplars, but we stopped sales of plastic bottles on campus. We put solar uh, hot water heaters on top of residence halls, namely Rachel's residence hall. We did uh, a lot of things and environmental studies majors and so on. Uh, don't don't but, forget, don't forget using the trays for sliding down the <laughs> Chapel Hill instead of carrying food. There you go. That's right. Uh, but we did create trainless Tuesdays for uh, the dining hall so that we would help eliminate food waste. We really did a lot. But uh, still, these weren't things that fundamentally modified the character of the institution. Chatham was still very much a regional institution, and we had very cleverly, if I may say, built our programs to serve the workforce needs of the region. So the health science programs uh, built on and the marvelous powerhouse uh, health, health industry that is in Pittsburgh. And so it gave us a lot of opportunities to run good programs and give our students uh, field experience and so on and so forth. But that was still enhancing our quality as a regional institution, whereas Chatham in the 60s had been a national institution. And so we had not yet found anything that really was able to move us to a different plateau in terms of opportunity. Uh, we were very, so anyway. Um, so how did Eden Hall come about? Because what, what Eden Hall represented first, when we did get it, uh, and because of the way we approached it, was an opportunity to break into a national and indeed an international arena as a leader in sustainability and environmental studies. We had been uh, one of the signatories to the president's climate commitment. Uh, but once again, we were part of a group and very proudly part of a group, a very small group. I think it was fewer than 20 who had signed on to, to become carbon neutral uh, as campuses. So we were, we were always there paying attention to the issues, but we didn't have a vehicle, really. And so uh, we didn't have a plan for one either, but we knew that, that this was a very important initiative for us. I heard that uh, Eden Hall existed, and I no longer remember who told me, but someone said to me, Eden Hall, <laughs> and, and I should tell you that Eden Hall, uh, I know you know this, but was a close connection to the H.J. Hines family. Sebastian Muller was H.J. Hines's brother-in-law. So it was connected with uh, very important uh, foundations in Pittsburgh and most importantly for us, the Eden Hall Foundation, who had been very good to Chatham over the years. But I heard that they had this property which Sebastian Muller had developed to uh, marvel story, care for the working class women uh, of Pittsburgh uh, 
initially those who worked for the Heinz factory or an R&R place. And then over the years, as fewer and fewer women wanted to go somewhere, there could be men or alcohol, that, that there could not be men or alcohol. It became a little less popular. And so it was really not fulfilling its original mission. But they had expanded it to any any professional woman who wanted an R&R retreat. But still, it was declining. And, and so they... Uh, had decided that they needed to find another use for it. And so uh, I heard that, and I went to call on the wonderful George Greer, who's the chair of the board, and uh, I got into his office, and before I opened my mouth to apologize for my audacity, uh, George said to me, uh, well, we've been thinking about you people over here. <laughs> they had been thinking about Chatham as a possible recipient of Eden Hall. And uh, because of the congruity of our missions, the Eden Hall Foundation coming out of Sebastian Muller's commitments was for the working women, the women of Pittsburgh. And uh of course, the land was preserved. They were growing their own food. It was a sustainability exercise. And he said, do you think you could be interested in it? And I said, well, it's a funny thing, funny thing you ask. And so Twist gave, my arm. Yes. <laughs> so he gave us the actually difficult challenge of uh, presenting a proposal of what would we do with it to be worthy of it and how would we do it. And that uh, kicked off a period of study. Of course, we immediately talked to the board, uh, took the stance that whatever we did, had to be big enough to warrant the amount of work it was going to take, and it had to help reposition the institution away from being only a regional institution. It had to give us the opportunity to be a national and an international institution. Uh, we knew that we would simply be competing with ourselves for fundraising if anything was was not a big and compelling new idea. And so we had to be significant. Uh, my senior staff and I and some trustees took several road trips. We got in my car and drove all over the East Coast to places that were exemplary. In one case, a couple of trustees went with us to a few places to see what the potential was. What did Berea College look like? What did Catawba look like? What, what did some of these schools do with the farms and woodlands that they owned? And then we began to look for campus planner. And as ever, we felt that we had to be engaged with the principal thought leaders in this area. We had to be working with the people who could teach us, but we also knew that we had to know enough for it to be our ideas, uh, that, that we were capable of having thoughts uh, that would help guide them, even though we weren't professionals in this area. So we did about a year of thought and study and travel to inform ourselves 
And then we began to work with uh, Bob Burkweil, who is one of the absolute leaders in the field of sustainability and planning, who helped us set the, uh, the original plans. And so uh, our hope for it to become, uh, it, it was an audacious idea. Uh, our hope for it to be that was absolutely marvelous. It was indeed the world's first self-sustaining campus that, that produced its own energy, processed its own wastewater, uh, produced uh, food. Uh, in that case, we were trying to be self-sufficient entirely. Uh, and we won for our efforts uh, a prize very shortly thereafter from uh, a very important international sustainability organization for the best integration of curriculum and architecture and campus planning in the world. So we deliberately sought out an organization that consisted of major universities, Harvard, Yale, others, uh, and it really did put Chatham in a new place in terms of the numbers of people who knew about what we were doing. Um, you asked me about a lot at once. The Falk School was started yes. uh, concurrently but with Before this. we go to Falk, okay. Esther, before we go to Falk, could I just ask you, from the, the, the visits that you did with the leadership and the trustees, which were the places, the ideas that really st stuck with you that you integrated into the thinking of Eden Hall? I don't know that one place in particular uh, influenced us greatly. I think what we what we were struck by in many ways, particularly at, uh, I believe it was Berea, that had an eco-village was the idea of how much the commitment of like-minded people uh, coming together, the, the types of students who came together around this sustainability mission uh, would play out in terms of how they lived in their living space and how important it was for the architecture to reflect uh, those opportunities for those students. And, and that was an insight which turned out to be uh, quite corroborated during the planning process. The architects uh, were, were uh, very good uh, at uh, Mithun, our second architect who worked on uh, not the basic campus master plan, but who worked on the actual design of the campus and modified the master plan somewhat. Mithun was marvelous at working with the students and they, they showed things in our students that we hadn't even known were there, uh, asking them, asking them, what should this campus be for? What should it do? We probably learned as much from them as, as going anywhere. And the, our students, for example, believed, uh, if you have a moment for a very brief story here, that it should be one sure. for a campus given that we have health science students for a family called the McSickleys, who were Pittsburghers, who didn't <laughs> know how to live healthily, they said. And so they right. saw this as an opportunity to create a place where 
the community was taught, and just just like the women from the Heinz factories who came, the women were taught. Uh, the, the families would be taught how to eat healthy food, how to grow healthy food, how to prepare healthy food, how to do exercise mm-hmm. on Zen platforms overlooking the woods, uh, doing yoga, uh, and so on. Yeah. And and we saw another whole dimension, communitarian dimension to these students that was marvelous. So, excuse me. So it was the exercise itself. I don't think any one place uh, – could have contained what we were trying to create precisely because we were really the first that put all these ideas together. And so you, you were coming to the Falk School. So, so yes. you laid out this very impressive, expansive master plan vision for how all elements of the campus could tie in and show sustainability. But then the Falk School became it's the academic home or, or base there. Yes, and our commitment all along was never to create something that didn't have an academic counterpart because the students should be able to benefit from anything the university did or wanted to do. And so uh, actually a school we had organized as a university, as you pointed out, in 7-8, and then we Shortly thereafter, reorganized into schools, uh, and we created the, uh, the a school for sustainability and environmental studies, which had no name, uh, in order to proceed in parallel with the uh, development of the campus, uh, in order to start the programs. But the Falk School, particularly was due to an absolutely extraordinary gift from uh, Sigal Falk, gift for which I take no credit uh, in the securing. Uh, and I will say that it was one of the more powerful examples of philanthropy one could ever see uh, or hope to experience, uh, more delightfully delivered than in a philanthropic news one could ever have. Uh, Mr. Falk, as you know yourself, is a person of uh, deep and informed beliefs. And he had uh, been the head of a family foundation, which he felt should wind down, that that was the intent of the original creation of the foundation. So he spent considerable time, unbeknownst to me anyway, thinking about where... uh, the residual of that foundation would go. And he uh, made that decision, and again, unbeknownst to me, and as sometimes happened at the end of a board meeting, I uh, got up to leave because they would go into confidential session, and Mr. Falk handed me an envelope, and he said, read this over the Pacific. And I said, all right, and uh, happy to follow such instructions. I actually was on my way to China. Uh, I I think I was probably over Mongolia or somewhere, or uh, I I believe it was over land when I opened it. Uh, uh, And I was in tears when I 
I looked at this very long document initially. I was not in tears initially, but I looked at this and I thought, oh, no. I, we had talked a little bit about his, his helping fund the campus. Uh, but I thought, oh, you know, we're getting, uh, I see this is a wind down of the foundation. And I thought we are being right. told why we are never going to receive any more gifts from the Falk Foundation. And when I got to the end of this, the document, which was a formal closing document, declared that the residual of the foundation, $15 million, would be given to Chatham University. Then I was in tears, <laughs> as you can appreciate. And well, I, I was <laughs> expecting more a shout that could have scared your fellow travelers. <laughs> right, that would have been dangerous. <laughs> but, oh no, it was, I, I could barely contain myself, you can imagine, until that plane landed and I was able to get on a phone. Wow. Every president's dream to get a letter like that. <laughs> Absolutely. It wasn't even a letter. It was a legal document. <laughs> that's why I say, you know, and there's a Rorschach here. Would you have wait, read it all through before you got to the end or not? I did. Wow. <laughs> I've been teased by many of my colleagues about what kind of person was I. <laughs> I, did, you, I you're didn't. not someone who peeks to the end of a book before. <laughs> With, with Sigo's permission, we named the School of Sustainability the Falk School because he had been the steadiest and strongest champion for sustainability throughout Chatham's history that I experienced. And I think is still the only person to have walked every acre of the 388 there. There's no question about it. He, he knows more about it than anyone. So there's, there's just no question about it. Uh, sometimes the other trustees would teach him about his Bataan marches around. <laughs> so I, I don't know what the tech was like at that time. Were you able to then phone Sigo when you landed? Or yes, how did, yes. How did, yes, yes, great. yes. Yeah, that's great. He laughed so, so, at me. I'm sure he did. <laughs> What a great story. So yes. we did have a chance last time to talk a little bit about the, the co-ed transition, but I wanted to come come back to that as, as you know, sort of the last major uh, decision you made. Um, you had mentioned in detail when you first started that the college had looked at it hard, made the decision not to go co-ed, but instead to build the graduate programs that proved so successful. Given, you know, the Falk School, given the success of graduate, what what was it that led you to re-examine that and make that tough decision to to make the transition? Uh, if I may, could I just go back to this previous story one one Please, moment? Please, absolutely. Because there, yeah. uh, there are just a couple of things that that I would want to say. One one is that the uh, desire to give Chatham a national presence and a national opportunity, which uh, I see you're exploiting and I'm so, so pleased. And I think there's still 
uh, we have yet to hit it exactly right, but uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity, and I'm so pleased you're taking it. But it has raised Chatham's profile when Sierra, the Sierra Club, is listing us as someone one of the yep. coolest colleges in the country yep. on environment. Right, hundred percent scores on Princeton Review of the greenest schools. Exactly. So it has really repositioned Chatham away from from being purely a regional university, which is a wonderful thing to be. But we had aspirations to be more because of our heritage and because of the leadership role we wanted to to play there. And just to show the knock on effect from that, and you may be aware, but, you know, two years ago, U.S. News and World Report moved us into the national university ranking. So we're now among the top 200 national universities in the country. I did not know that. And I'm thrilled to know it. That's great. And I think even better, you'll enjoy that if you look at all 10 of the national universities in Pennsylvania, we rank number one for social mobility. So in terms of Pell students and their graduation rates, better than CMU, Penn, you name it. And I know that one's well-deserved and long-standing, actually. Yes. So that's that's fabulous. I'm very happy to hear that. I, uh, as I think you know, serve on the board of an HBCU now and often draw on my Chatham experience of the percentage of Pells that we had and what uh, Pell students and what was successful with those students so well that's that's marvelous news really and the other the other caveat i wanted to to add knowing that you surely can't use all this but it's good to just have it sure absolutely Um, another story that's remarkable about the chatham board is that at one and the same time uh east side and eden hall were in the works so uh, and and the Great Recession, all all at the same time. Exactly, and so I was extremely fearful that the board would decide against the purchase of Eastside because mm. the possible gift of Eden Hall loomed, and right. that people would say, "Well, what do, what what do you want to buy this expensive real estate for when yeah. there's?" A 300, a 300 square foot, 250 square foot yeah. building. Uh, um, you know, you're going to get 388 yeah. acres for free versus a 250 $18 million dollar yeah. yeah. building. And, and that I thought was really very short sighted because they represented quite other things. One yeah. was this national opportunity, a real sort of pushed our creativity as educators. Uh, and the other was, uh, a good investment and much needed space for programs that had to be in the city. Yep. It was very important that the health science program stay in the city, with access to the hospitals. Sure. So, so uh, I, I give our board great kudos for, for stepping up and saying, okay, we're, we will do this. Yep. Well, and just to put it in context for folks, right, to go from a place that was a a beautiful but very small urban campus to almost overnight becoming bigger in landmass than either Pitt or CMU. That's right. And with a with a relatively small endowment, right? For an institution that was almost oh, very small. 150 years old, you're talking <laughs> about, you know, 50, 60 million dollars at that time. That's right. That's right. To take on all of this at once, 
you know, there there were frankly, right, a lot of people in Pittsburgh who thought you and the board were a little nuts, right, to, to be right. doing doing all of this. We at, were in the best yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. But we yeah. had it figured out. We knew how yeah. to how the building was going to pay for itself, and then as they said, you could sell it if it didn't work. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but no, and and we didn't have to do everything at Eden Hall. We do have a problem, uh, I think, still of needing to uh, have the resources to move uh, at Eden Hall and realize its vision. Yeah. Uh, but everything doesn't have to be done at once. Securing the basic yeah. resource is crucial. So right. these were once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. Yeah. But to invest $50 million for a place which is, you know, what went into just the first phases That's of Eden right. Hall for a place that was, you know, did, didn't have a lot in the bank, was that was a huge bet to make. It was. Unfortunately, one piece of what we wanted to do there uh, – I wasn't able to secure, and and I think uh, I don't know if uh, it just hasn't sort of been on the radar. I don't think, but I do yeah. think it's very important, and I think the possible parallel to the paying tenants at Eden, at, at uh, Eastside Eastside is yeah. is to use that Eden Hall campus also as a two-year completer campus for the community colleges that are around. So there's no reason that sustainability is the only thing to be taught there. But it can be a completer for the community college program that's there and have more of a a bread and butter academic income. But there's still very hard choices that that I know you're confronting. I mean, sometimes I fantasize about it's been, and they're not necessarily in conflict, but about it's being a work college for the students who live yep. there, uh, the Berea model. But yep. but the point is, you have the possibility, you have the options. Right. Well, and, you know, we, we have built a nice relationship with BC3, the Butler, the local community right. college, and, right. and have degree completion programs with them. Not, I think, to the extent that we would like to see, but, and then the other piece, which you mentioned as coming a bit from Berea and also from Ithaca is we now, you know, we're moving forward with the development of the eco-village there with a multi-generational housing. So I think that same sense of bringing talented people who share the mission will will also be really helpful in, in, in moving the campus to the next level. It'll happen, I'm confident. So it's very good. Uh, but I, I just did do want to point out. No, that, that's great. Thank you. You know, for, one of the reasons yeah, the yeah. trustees got the AGB award yeah. uh, for good yeah. governance in yeah. 16, I think it was, was yeah. that uh, it was either 15 or 16, was because of their exceptional handling of the early crisis and their willingness yep. to invest endowment in institutional growth and secondly their ability to step up and recreate that kind of venture-based decision making again around Eden Hall and uh, Eastside yep. so they've been very yep, very absolutely. bold so yep no, no question yeah great partners for you in these efforts absolutely yes so, so to talk about the the, the decision to go all gender, <laughs> the late yeah. unpleasantness, right? Yeah. So, so just if you could un- just sort of share what was Why? what was it that led you to come back to that and, and to make that right uh, after 08, the 
the facts were very were, were really pretty clear. We lost uh, almost immediately the uh, total gain in undergraduate enrollment that we had made since '92. Uh, so it had gone up uh, because of the programs that we had developed. I mean, our uh, five-year opportunity for bachelor-master's combinations, lots of the things that we had done. But I think eight was the beginning of what we're seeing right now, which is people turning away from uh, the pandemic has just heightened but did not cause things that started in 08, I believe. Uh, so uh, we we caught it pretty quickly when we saw that our total enrollment was probably manageable, but we were pretty out of whack uh, between the graduate and the undergraduate enrollment and our hope that we could keep steadily growing the undergraduate women's enrollment uh, by the strategy of linking it to the co-ed graduate programs, simply wasn't going to work during during times of economic challenge. And those times continue to come no matter what, for whatever reason, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's an economic crisis. Now you might ask, why did we take that much longer to make the decision? Because we, we saw this... Uh, certainly by nine, by 10. And I was just honestly so committed to not going co-educational that though I saw the data, uh, we, we tried everything we could. Um, but by 14, and, and you know, sadly, it probably took four years to finally say, this just simply isn't going to work. We we had no more, uh, not that we'd ever had just hats, to, you know, rabbits to pull out of a hat. We just did not have more opportunities. We we had done all the things one might do: programmatic innovation, campus expansion, improvement, etc. So uh, that was the, that was the compelling reason. We knew that we had to be coeducational in order to have a, a chance at growing our enrollment. Otherwise, you were just going to be co-educational by other name. You want a massive continuing ed program. You want a massive online program. We, we didn't have the experience or knowledge to do that kind of thing, but we spent a couple of years studying them and seeing whether, whether we could do it. All in the interest and of so you protecting that, the small women's college, and it was that, becoming unjust origin, to our yep. graduate programs, right? And so on. Yep. So, so you mentioned that um, as you had done with the decision to realize the vision for Eden Hall, you did some study visits. You went to Rutgers, where I used to be, and and others. Can you say what what were the what were the thinking? What was the ideas that that came into how you wanted to go all gender. We um, we really wanted to honor the history of the institution and every major change at Chatham that I was part of looked back while it looked forward. And we tried very hard to keep uh, some historical continuity. So 
it was very important to keep our leadership position, uh, our commitment to women's uh, civic engagement and leadership, uh, our general commitment to diversity. Uh, those were all things that were very important. And so we went to places, as you said, like Rutgers, that had done it. Uh, Alison Bernstein, who was the head of the Women's Institute at Rutgers, was an old friend of mine. And so we visited and talked uh, about what were the opportunities, what were the pitfalls. And uh, we also thought about, because I had also been a faculty member at a women's college, which actually closed, was absorbed by its uh, male counterpart. Uh, Hamilton and Kirkland Colleges. So we had several models that we could look at. We thought about merger. We we knew, though, that the women's college would be gone. Uh, Carnegie Mellon had wanted Chatham at one point earlier. Uh, but it wasn't that kind of thing. We weren't in that bad of shape overall. It, we, we thought about, right. did we want to become a graduate institute? We thought about, did we want to create a co-educational counterpart on the model of the Claremont Colleges? We did a huge number mm-hmm. of things. And then once the senior staff came to a conclusion that there really was no other option, that could really be managed Uh, while we're trying to build Eden Hall. Did we really, uh, in that campus and program, did we really want to try to be uh, raising money for for things to uh, create a whole second college simply to keep the undergraduate program from going co-educational? It really made no sense. So one of the things that, we tried to do was to have others reach the same conclusion with us, but also to listen and see if somebody had a better idea. So we did create a study group uh, and I and, and the academic vice president met with the faculty. We read books. We went through all the same things the senior staff had gone through and this was a committee of 12 to 14 people, uh, department heads, division heads, Uh, faculty who were graduates of the Women's College. And with the exception of one or two people, everyone reached the same conclusion. And so we actually were fanning out across campus, uh, studying, talking, working with alumni, uh, having open meetings with, uh, well, it wasn't yet at the stage of the board, but it progressed by normal processes after that. A lot of open meetings. Once once we reached the conclusion that we had to do this, uh, that we had open forums and so on. And I think and we did a pretty good job. Pardon me? Absolutely. And I was going to say a great piece of evidence of the job you did. Well, two things. One, you know, there was a rating done a, a few years ago of the top undergraduate colleges for women leaders and the only one of the top seven that wasn't still all women was Chatham. So we were number three behind Wellesley, Smith, us, and then ahead of Mount Holyoke and, and Bryn Mawr. And so managed to keep the history, but to do it through the centers and institutes. And then I, I thought you'd love the fact I just this this fall got a call from a guy who's writing a, a profile on co-ed transitions. He had been at Texas Women's University 
And he was struck by how many of the formerly all women's institutions, now it was hard to tell they were ever all women, that they had left that so much. And he was so struck by the difference in our approach at Chatham and Yay! how that had still been successful. So, Oh, that's fabulous. Well, you've, you've now mentioned three things that I want to see all of them. But you well, know, that, it is that one hasn't appeared yet. He just interviewed me for it. So that's as soon great. as it comes out, I will share it. Please. Well, it is very interesting because uh, HBCUs keep that moniker, right? Historically yeah. black colleges. Yeah. I'd like to know why there aren't HWCUs. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, why not? Because it's something to be proud of. It creates an approach to all students that I think makes a difference. Well, and and you hear it now. If you hear some of our young male students or alums, they talk about being allies on gender equity, right? right. They've they've been, they've absorbed it. And, you know, frankly, if we're going to make further progress on gender equity, it's mostly the guys who have to change, right? There's no question. There's no question. Well, that's so, so I wanted to w- wind up by asking you a few questions, just sort of reflecting on your tenure. tenure. So you've obviously already touched on a number of amazing accomplishments during this time. What are those that you're most proud of? And either things we've already covered or if there are other things that we haven't touched on that you wanted to highlight. Well, obviously, I'm, I'm very proud that Chatham remained in existence and managed to uh, really get recognition for quality and innovation for 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 leadership and for stepping out intellectually and that was something that was a real mantra with me that that Chatham had to be worth saving we we had to keep the academic quality that all the alumni were so proud of the Chatham faculty is a wonderful faculty and it, it was very, very important that that be maintained, as well as the high level of learning for the students and civic engagement. There were themes in Chatham's history, institutional history, which made me come and I believe made you come. And so it was very important that those all be preserved. So uh, I think we did. And you've made me feel some of that today, and I'm happy to, to hear that. Uh, obviously, I am so very proud of, of Eden Hall and the Falk School and the potential that that uh, represents. Uh, but most of all, I just I love hearing the story you just told me about uh, men declaring themselves allies, and uh, I, I think most fundamentally the continuing spirit of Chatham and the fact that it's still an important institution in Pittsburgh. And I think people see that it plays a very special role in the city. So kudos to you. That's great. And and you, of course, absolutely. So when you look back, what, what do you think were the prior experiences that most prepared you to take on this enormous task. I mean, you obviously, as we talked about last time, you you were not dealt a great hand of cards when you started, <laughs> and yet, you know, you managed to quadruple the size of the institution, you know, really transform it into a national institution. So, so what what do you think prepared you most to succeed? In that? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's it's um, couple of experiences I, I would point to. 
one of the things that was very valuable in my career development it was a little unusual was uh, in addition to, as I mentioned to you, I, I went to a highly experimental uh, undergraduate college that made me believe that nothing was set in stone. And so that really encouraged inquiry yeah. and uh, experimentation in me. So my, I was not real academically orthodox in some ways, uh, except around the issue of quality outcomes which you have to be able to to demonstrate. It's just yep. the pathways that can be different. Yep. So that was one that really foundational for me. But in my career, I alternated uh, by accident between institutions that were quite elite institutions. I was affiliated with Hamilton, with Swarthmore, with the University of Pennsylvania, but also institutions that were uh, more hard scrabble and striving experimental institutions such as the former Philadelphia uh, College of Textile Science, Philadelphia University. Its president uh, managed through program development to really bring that school around to a completely new place. And I was the academic vice president there. So uh, my career alternated between a place where faculty really, uh, very distinguished faculty uh, at places like Swarthmore and Hamilton really ran the place Mm -hmm. to a place where there was a lot of presidential initiative. Uh, And and so I uh, learned to love and appreciate both kinds of uh, governance and leadership right. and the values of each I completely uh, loved and respected. And so uh, so that yep. was an unusual experience. I have a, a there's a little bit of a tendency in higher ed to uh, just look at a person as right. the people tend to stay in one or the other. Right? That's right. And and you are where you last were. And that so so that's what I would say in many ways gave me skills but uh, I don't know if that's an answer you were you were looking for oh but, no absolutely is yeah no, no I and I can see the fusion of those two elements in you know what you what you brought to what we did well thank you when, I when, just when try you think to about, stay open to ideas yeah. like you I'm sure steadily reading uh, stealing great ideas whenever I could <laughs> really yeah. really receptive to uh, yeah. To what was going on around me. Yeah. Um, when you think about not so much the experiences, but but you know your approach to leadership, what would you say were the greatest strengths that you brought that enabled you to do the things that you did? I think probably others should be asked that question more than I should than I. But uh, I I really think that. Um, You know, you really have to care about what you're doing. And I really do care about what I do. And I think people felt that. Um, I would be, as we discussed earlier, sometimes very slow, perhaps too slow, in reaching uh, decisions uh, or opinions about what should be done. But then I would actually process them a fair amount with other people and 
was open to having my thoughts disproven and really did want to hear. And uh, so I think that was a virtue. So in many ways, I wasn't a traditional communicator, but I, that is kind of sharing absolutely every detail, but everything important, everybody knew. And sometimes I was very honored. One time someone said to me, we know you're going to always be honest with us. And that, that meant a great deal. So I was willing to do hard things. I had the ability to do hard things, which doesn't mean it's easy. But when I told people that this wasn't going to happen again, for example, in the initial cuts, I, you know, they right. came to believe me over time. And I think yeah. that developing that, that meant something. But I, <laughs> I will say uh, that one does uh, never lose whatever thinness their skin has. Uh, my, my, the co-ed right. crisis was one of the more difficult times for me because I had spent uh, basically sure. 20 years of my life of trying to avoid that. But at one point, I remember uh, coming in after one of the difficult meetings and my husband having made me a T-shirt which said, hug a harpy, because he'd been watching the video meetings in which I was accused of being a harpy for, for advocating that point of view. But I'm afraid, David, I have no crisp answer for you about that question. No, that's great. <laughs> No, 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 that's great. And and this may already be what you touched on with, with the going co-ed, but what, what would you view as the, the biggest challenge you had over that 24 years, and how, how did you handle that? The biggest challenge I had, there were probably two. One uh, was quite real. You come in as a new president, and... Uh, the only alternative to move forward are severe cuts. And you have to combine it with a vision of where to go, but the severe cuts have to happen. And how do you know uh, that you're going to be employed in five months? That really can't be your primary focus, but it's, but, yeah. but it's the largest challenge because you don't really know the landscape. I, I grew to know and trust the Chatham board extremely well. I remember asking them during the interview process, I said, I think I know which limbs to crawl out on. Will you support me? And they assured me they did. Yeah. Why did they would? But is that true? How many, how many presidential candidates right. are told they're going to receive board support and never do? Um, but uh, at, right. at my one-year anniversary, after all these cuts had happened, uh, Jane Berger, the then board chair, said, so have we sawed your limb out? And, of course, the answer was <laughs> no. They had, they had been there like rocks, the wonderful rocks that they were uh, supporting me. So that was, without a doubt, the hardest because I believed in full disclosure yeah. Probably the most horrible meeting of my life was going into the chapel with a full campus meeting mm -hmm. 
and announcing that cuts were going to happen immediately. And people should go back to their offices. And if they were affected, they would receive the news then. So we had the entire campus organized for communication. And the Chatham faculty, disturbed as we all were by this, were total troopers. They organized their students and sat down with them and said, things are going to be okay. Uh, We promise we've worked this through. We're here for you. Uh, And so on. So that was, without a doubt, the hardest thing I went through. And the second thing that was much lesser was uh, once things grew and got better and we were committed to trying to raise salaries, uh, still never got them as high as we would like to because of the need for the sort of prudence I was talking about. Um, But keeping the momentum for change going once there is improvement is hard. And this is an environment in which Education has to continue to adapt. Higher education now is in one of the most challenged periods in history. I've often thought, I'm happy you have the challenges you have rather than me, because it is a very hard time to be a president. And you have my total sympathy and support, because I faced a lot. What you face is in many ways even harder. And so... uh, it requires constant, constant change and transformation. And I think when things are improving financially and economically, it's very hard to keep moving those borders for change because people don't see the necessity. Yeah. Can, can I ask a, a little more about that? Because, you know, frankly, you know, just knowing the, the toll and what this just four and a half years, the idea that you could do that for 24 years and bring about all these waves of renewal and transformation. I mean, that I think more than any one of these is to me what's so impressive. How did you, what was it that you did in that second challenge? So, you know, it's one thing to tell people we got to change because the only alternative is closing, but it's another when you're, you've got grad programs that are full, you, you, you've actually replenished the coffers, things are going well, but then to ask people to to change again and to rethink the the way we hire faculty to to take on all these bold things. How did you, both personally and for the institution, how did you go about those? You know, getting ready for this next wave. Well, it's it it. Thank you for that because that's that's exactly what I meant by that was the second greatest. Yeah challenge. Uh, not only the first one, you know, they, they all saw don't waste a good crisis. Yeah. It was a genuine crisis. Yeah. And once, yeah. once there are, right, once yeah. there are no more crises, what, what, what do you do? Uh, I, I do think that a certain credibility was fortunately gained by the very quick success of the graduate programs. Uh, when when we had the budgets balanced within three years uh, and, and close to bu- balanced within two, and we had asked people to do really exceptional things, I mean, very, very hard things, including terminating a tenured faculty member. Uh, that had been very difficult. We had asked people to work with fewer resources and do new things. 
but I think a lot of it was was credibility and very uh, successful hiring. Some of the people who came in were just so so wonderful. Uh, I think I, meant, I mentioned to you before the new types of faculty contracts. Uh, Yep. were given to people yep. who in and of themselves had a great deal of credibility with the already superb tenure track faculty who were there. Mm-hmm. So people kind of saw steady evidence around them that that the change mm-hmm. was working. But occasionally we would have to remind people that uh, that this is a world that is is yeah requires constant, constant change. And we would bring people in, uh, like uh, the, the president of Southern New Hampshire, when we were exploring ideas. Right, so, Paul LeBlanc. Yes, and yeah. wonderful yeah. Paul LeBlanc uh, come in and talk about why are we doing these things and what. So a lot of you know, faculty are, and, and it's mostly faculty that you're talking about when, when you're talking about how you keep these waves of change. Uh, but it's also the board and, and the uh, board members who've been around for a while uh, were very important at, at saying, be patient, don't be afraid to newer board members. Uh, right. Don't be afraid. It's, it, we need to keep moving this way. And they, right. and so we did, uh, in summary, a uh, sort of continuing education program of people, mm-hmm. uh, having people from outside come in and talk to the faculty, talk to yeah. the board uh, about what challenges were that were out there. Uh, we worked very hard to try to improve the conditions of people mm-hmm. while nonetheless always uh Talking prudence and and yep. investment, yep. and and you know higher ed is, is such a challenged venue that there really was always some challenge to overcome. So why <laughs> the, the, you didn't have to have a crisis? Yeah, there was no way to just kick back, right? That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. So so having gone through all how, how did you do, what? When did you come to the decision? It was the right right time for you to step down. Well, I probably, but for the lateness of my co-ed decision, my co-ed, it wasn't mine, our co-ed decision, uh, would have retired earlier. But I really did want to be responsible for helping recruit that first class and getting them in and go through the first year because I felt uh, that setting the tone of what co-education would look like uh, was was something I wanted to take part in. Um, I, I also really felt that I was the one who had to do co-education because I, I knew I was reaching uh, retirement age. It could have been 65 as it was. It was 70 for me, really, uh, when, I, when I finally left. Um, and I thought, I don't want to stick a successor with that. Uh, I don't want anyone to, to have anybody say to, uh, her or him, uh, she, she didn't do it after more than 20 years there. Why? So what makes us believe you? And so I, I felt really 
morally obligated to carry that through uh, because I think people really believed that I had tried very hard. At least the evidence was it hadn't happened, right? Uh, so I, I just I just felt I had to do that. And, and as it happened, it didn't get decided until uh, the 14, 15 year. And uh, as far as for me personally, I, uh, I really felt that at 70, I needed and feeling that I still had uh, some juice left. I felt that I needed to try to learn, challenge myself to learn how to live the rest of my life. And I also felt that uh, it was probably past time for the institution to have change and new leadership. When, when you, I'm sure throughout that time, you've had a lot of chance to, to mentor, to talk with new college presidents. What do you reflect on from your experience, advice that you give to folks who are coming into, as you say, this is not the easiest time to be assuming this role. So what do you, what do you say to people to think about how, what you need to be successful? That's a, that's a really... Good question, because so much depends on the person you're speaking with, sure. right? But uh, I think the very most important thing is to get to know your constituencies well uh, and not to assume that you have magic formulas. I didn't really know anything other when I started Chatham than that graduate programs probably were what we ought to be doing. Which ones? I didn't know. I I didn't come in with a set of formulas. And I think it would be very important to tell people, don't bring a set of formulas because the people, we probably won't get the job in the first place, but you were asking about people who'd gotten the job. But uh, on the other hand, it is very important to try to get something done early to show that you're there as a leadership person. So uh, in my case, uh, the initial cuts happened within the first year. You had a necessity to take pretty bold action just because of not having a lot of margin for error left. Yes, but I actually think probably everybody has some necessity to do something so that people know they're there. (laughs) But I, but I, I really do believe that uh, it's enormously important to, uh, to talk with, to talk with people, especially with faculty, even when it's about things, you know, they disapprove, but to really, uh, think hard about explaining why you're doing things and then re-explaining why you're doing and to the greatest extent you can to get people to reach the same conclusion. But at some point, you also have to have a posture of, I have this responsibility and I will take it. Yeah. So if there's anything... So you mentioned in your... No, I was going to say, if there's anything I regret, it it would only be times when I wish I had communicated more. Um, So you mentioned that one of the things that when you were taking the decision to to step down was thinking about 
life after and learning what that would be like. How, how has that been for you? So how has the transition been? And, you know, what, what, what does life look like for you after being a university president? I'll tell you once I'm through transitioning. <laughs> I, uh, I, I uh, as you know, I spent time, I serve on a couple of university boards. What's what's very interesting is they're very different than Chatham. Yeah. And so I'm learning. One is a public HBCU here in Washington, D.C. And another is uh, an American liberal arts college in Rome, Italy. Uh, so I'm able to use my professional expertise uh both as a learner and as uh, someone I hope contributing. Um, I spend my time that way. I spend my time applying for dual citizenship uh, with Italy and doing family research, uh, trying to use my long ago uh, skills as a historian to learn something about my own family, but I'm enjoying it. Uh, It's, it's a, it's a, a life change for me, as I think you know, uh, in yep. in many many ways. But unfortunately, we have not been able to travel. Uh, in right. the I last know that was year. one of the things you were most looking for. Not that you didn't travel in the job, but obviously much right. greater freedom to go wherever right. you that's wanted right. to do. And that's not been a great thing. This no, last we got year as far as Tibet, China, and. I was physically able to climb the stairs to the Dalai Lama's uh, wow. palace, but uh, those are the kinds of things you dream of, but haven't been able to do too much of that recently. But generally, I think uh, learning to live at a different pace and to read and to figure out what's important to think about is, uh, is a gift. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Esther, this has been really delightful. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've really enjoyed speaking with you and wish you and Sam all the best. Oh, thank you. Well, this has been a total, total pleasure. And I wish you and Sue the best and uh, sincerely. And anytime uh, you need me, I'm here. <laughs> I much so, appreciate it. And hopefully you. Thank not, you. Thank you, not too long before we can actually be together. Ah, that would be lovely again. So I really thank you for your interest. I appreciated the chance to wander down these memory lanes again. So be well. Thanks. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye.